This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I'm here with JJ Genflone. We are the host of the podcast. Hello, world. We are here to talk to you today about a series of things happening in Florida. Florida. Be prepared. <laughs> it's a lot warmer in Florida than it is right here where there's a lot of snow in Colorado. Second highest rate in the U.S. of exotic animals owned by private people. But we're not talking about tigers this time. Florida has exotic things too. Alligators and and what else, JJ? Uh, well, the Disney Corporation. Swamp, wetlands, beautiful scenery, sunshine laws, which means we get delightful Florida man stories, which is why it makes Florida look like it's a crazy place. But in fact, they're just really into being open. Yeah, they have uh, rich older men down there in places like uh, Palm Beach and Jupiter, which are only yep. a half hour away from each other. Yeah, that's Seth and I, this is a two-part series, what I'm calling the Florida Man series. But Seth, I, I think, wants us to have more of an official academic title. But that's boring. This is Dirty Old Florida Man series, part one and two. Uh, please don't sue us. We're broke. That's a subheading. Yeah, what's interesting, Seth sent me a Google map link between our two stories, and you could actually travel between the locations that both of these stories are happening in in 30 minutes. So, and Florida's got great weather. It's balmy, so you could probably jog that in about two hours. So uh, this week, we're going to be talking about the news that came out recently about massage parlors in Jupiter, Florida. And so JJ will talk about that. And then next week, we will talk about Jeffrey Epstein, where I will go into that story, which involves a billionaire, Jeffrey Epstein, and a very complicated case that uh, is also back in the news. But to start with, I'll hand it over to JJ. Okay, yeah. And I, I will say for the Epstein one, back in the day, we were followed by a lot of people who were really into Pizzagate, and they didn't like us very much, but this is a time where they might enjoy us yet again. So look at us, building bridges. Always. That's what Seth and I live for. No, okay, so what I'm going to be talking to sort of all of y'all about today is sort of the very interesting case involving Bob Kraft, the famous owner of the the New England Patriots and other teams. We're going to talk about him mm -hmm. a little bit later. He's rich, very rich. Oh, he's a billionaire. He's a billionaire. Uh, so we're going to be talking about sort of him later, but but a story that broke this week that links him to human trafficking cases related to massage parlors that exist throughout Florida. And so the story got a lot of press because Bob Kraft was involved as a client of one of these massage parlors and, in fact, was picked up during a sting. But the fact of the matter is, is that cases like this happen regularly, both in Florida and in other U.S. states related to massage parlors, and they don't make the news to this degree because there's not a disgraced billionaire uh, whose photo is associated with it. So while this case, I'm going to be talking a lot about Bob Kraft and how he relates to it, it's really important to remember that ultimately what's at stake here are the the women and men who are working, quote-unquote working, who are trafficked through these massage parlors. So there are a lot of what a lot of the press has been dubbing Asian, but more specifically Chinese, massage parlors in Florida strip malls. In fact, there have been on, on record over uh, 250 massage parlors in the Florida um, 
Miami-Dade area alone, that's a huge number of massage parlors that list themselves offering sexual services. And in particular, one of the things that has come out of this that I find very interesting, and I highly recommend all of you go, this is not a paid advertisement, is there is a thing called rubmaps.com, R-U-B-M-A-P-S.com. And that is a, a literal online map, sort of a Yelp, for erotic massage services where people can go on and, and review where, where it is that they've gone for erotic massages, what were the prices, and, and sort of leave reviews. And this is a very detailed website. Now that it's sort of hit the public news, I'm curious to see if this will go the way of Backpage as well and, and get shut down because ideally uh, erotic massage in all states, I think except for Nevada, is illegal. Again, just because like we talked about in some of our other commercial sex podcasts, just because someone is engaging in illicit commercial sex doesn't mean they are a trafficking victim, but we do see a lot of trafficking through massage parlors. And I do wonder when you see people... You know, for example, I found on RubMaps a number of places uh, very near to me here in Colorado where the prices were around $30. And with a price that low, that, that makes me think that someone at the very least is being exploited. Now, within sort of these these major massage parlors, there's, there's a number of things that sort of are what we would identify as giant red flags related to human trafficking. One, almost all of the individuals working there, even in management, were foreign nationals. So these are individuals that are in the U.S. either um, undocu in an undocumented sense or in visas that have lapsed or without any papers at all. These are also individuals, and in, in this particular case, who do not speak English, but in fact, while a lot of the articles have talked about how, you know, oh, these women are from China, they don't speak English, if you actually look into this case, you'll see that there were, in the initial sting, when, it, when these women became identified as being from China, the police actually sent in Mandarin-speaking police officers to try and make contact with these women. So these police officers went in as part of a sting, pretending to be prospective clients, or, or active clients, rather, and they couldn't communicate with these women, either in Mandarin or then later in Cantonese, because indeed these women don't even speak standard Mandarin. Instead, what they speak are, are very small local dialects. Uh, so these are sort of regional dialects uh, in ex that, that are primarily, you know, if you live in China and you only speak a dialect and not a, like a dialect in Mandarin, it generally means that you're from an exceptionally like small rural area because standard Mandarin is taught in all Chinese like formalized education. They're, you're required to learn formal Mandarin and then you might speak your dialect at home. So, for example, if you are a native person from Shanghai, you might speak Shanghaiese with your family, but certainly you speak Mandarin, you know, at work and on the street and on all of TVs in, in Mandarin and, and police services are in Mandarin. And, and why this matters is that this is then an additional layer of vulnerability for these women because they're not going to have anyone who comes in to the parlor who speaks their native language. And if these women are from a variety of different villages or from a variety of different regions and areas, they may not even be able to communicate with one another. 
so you may have 10 women working at one of these parlors and each one of them speaks a different regional dialect and they can't communicate with one another. So they're completely at the mercy of the person in charge who I'm assuming controlled them via uh, either speaking sort of like a pigeon version of, of what they of what they speak to, to get what they need to do across or just through force and like showing them. So, boom. And that's just a, a thing that bothers me as a China scholar when people are like, it's all Mandarin. It's not. It's dialects. And that's important. So that is a massive red flag too because then clients are coming in and receiving services and are not actually able to communicate with the women providing services for them. So they can't even get a feel of, you know, are these women okay? Are, are they happy about their jobs? Are, are they getting, you know, you can't even ask, like, are you getting paid to keep the money that you're making? That is a red flag. So the, the lack of legal documentation, number one. Being involved in an illicit economy, massage parlors already is a massive flag. Three, the fact that no one there is able to communicate with one another or with clients. Four, the fact that there appear to be video surveillance cameras everywhere. Why are these women being watched all the time? Why are they not trusted to be alone? Five, residents in the area start reporting that they never see these women leave. It's not that people are coming and going to work regularly, it's that people are living and working in a commercial space. That is a major flag for trafficking because it's not uncommon for traffickers to keep individuals in the spaces where they work because then again, one, they can always be working, Two, they don't have an opportunity to form relationships with people outside. Three, they have no ability to sort of see even where they are. They're trapped inside of a building. And then four, it just saves them money. They don't have to have a space to actually keep people to, to feed and house them. They can just keep them at the commercial space that's making the money. So reports are coming in that these women never leave. And when they do leave, they are literally herded into a car. They're, it's not even that they're allowed to walk through the parking lot. They're literally herded uh, single file into a van and then driven to another massage parlor owned by the same proprietress. And then they disappear into there for a couple of weeks and then they're herded back in and then they go again. And if this is happening to the point where multiple people who sort of live in the area where the strip mall is and other people who work at the strip mall are reporting it, that tells me that this was super obvious. They weren't really trying to hide what they were doing, which means they probably were doing this a long time, which is why they got comfortable at it. Then the final thing that really strikes me as being like, hey, hey, flag is the price. And I mentioned the price of sort of erotic massage listed on this website coming in at around $30 near me in Denver. Massage parlors are a legally regulated entity in the U.S. You have to, to be a massage therapist, go to school. You have to be licensed. You have to be have certificates. You have to pay the state for sort of all of your bonding. It's the same as if you go to, even if you go to like a supercut to get your hair cut, that person had to go to school. They had to get a license, a cosmetics license. As such, legal massages tend to be, through legal massage parlors, a little bit more expensive you know, they're, they're definitely going to be above the $30 range for a half hour because people who are performing these massages have put out a really big expense. You know, like you expect to pay a hairdresser. I mean, boys are different, but I'm a girl. So I expect to pay my hairdresser more than $30 to cut my hair because presumably they spent thousands of dollars 
going to school and then having an apprenticeship and now paying booth rent. Same thing with nail technicians. If you go to a place and everything on the menu to get your, we've talked about trafficking nail salons. If you go to a menu, a place to get your nails done and everything on the menu is under $30 in the U.S., that is probably not a legally running and operated place because for a nail technician to go and get certified is also thousands upon thousands of dollars because they're dealing with harsh chemicals. And it's the same thing with massage parlors. So the fact that these prices were so low, they sat at around $90 for a, a quote-unquote erotic, erotic massage. Generally, you would assume that a regular massage would be over $100 and then an erotic massage on top of that regular massage would be super, would, you know, at the very least, you're looking at a $200 massage because of the fact that you're getting a legitimate service plus this little illicit service as well. But if you're getting something that's so, so low, then that means all you're getting is the illicit service, which means that the vulnerabilities of the people there are even higher because if it's just an illicit market, like there's no one there who has a legitimate massage certificate or who's gone through school then that means that the likelihood of the people who work there calling the police or, or calling labor boards to protect themselves is really low. So whoever's running this business is willing to take all of these risks. Why? Probably because they're making a profit elsewhere. Now on to this specific case, okay? Police became aware almost over a year ago that this particular business in Florida... Uh, run by a woman named, uh, last name Lan Yuan, was hitting all of these flags for trafficking. So at the very least, it was running an illegal prostitution business, erotic massage files under illegal commercial sex in the U.S. So at the very least, she was running an illegal commercial sex business, but certainly it also seemed like she was running a human trafficking business. So they start up a... Actually, I'm very impressed with it. Uh, a long-term sting operation and investigation. And so what they engage with is police surveillance that follows things like uh, Lanyuan driving women back and forth between these businesses. They also sent in uh, police officers posing as clients to get video recording and surveillance of the individual of, of individuals who were being held there at the spa. And, and through this, they found that women working there were living in a room with just two mattresses on two by fours. Uh, they had made a makeshift shower and they had a really small, tiny room that they were allowed to cook in for food. And they were being kept there uh, 24 hours a day. They were able to apply for RICO charges, which is uh, racketeering charges which RICO is a really nice tool. I think we've talked about it in previous podcasts that law enforcement uses that once you have RICO, you're able to do things like wire. Like once, once law enforcement has proven that RICO is happening, they're allowed to do things like wiretapping. And so they recorded what was happening in, inside the spa, what was happening outside the spa, who's coming in, who's going out. And they started trying to trace the workers there. And that's when you see them sending in these police officers that speak Mandarin and Cantonese, and then that doesn't work. And so that's when I think really, truly the final bit of alarm bells were going off for them because the fact that no one can communicate with these women is, is an additional problem. Day-to-day uh, -day living, what they find is that these women are asked to pay, well, they're, being, they're made to pay $30 a day 
uh, to Lan Yuan in order to pay for their food and housing, quote unquote, which I, you know, is very clear at subpar. It's a bunch of them being forced to sleep on mattresses together on the floor of the place where they work, that they are engaged not just in, and this is going to be really crass, but a lot of times these massage parlors are labeled as like rub and tug sort of places, implying that all the sex happening is of a manual hand stimulation sort. Uh, but what they find out is that the women are actually engaging in full-on uh, penetrative vaginal intercourse with clients, that there is even something, uh, one, of the, one of the write-ups uh, by police included this literally hidden drop-down jar of condoms that could come out of the ceiling and then be pulled back up in case law enforcement raided the establishment, but that also the women were being told that if clients wanted to engage in sexual intercourse without protection, that they had to have sex with them without protection, uh, which is exceptionally dangerous, but we've seen happen in many human trafficking cases with commercial sex because people tend to pay more for sex that doesn't involve prophylactics, and that what they are making on average per uh, sexual engagement with client is they're, they're making roughly $90, 70 of which they have to give to the house, 30 of which they can keep for themselves, but they are fined for a variety of things that Lan Yuan or the other house manager defines as being damaging behaviors, and those fines uh, can, can add up very quickly, and so fines include things for, like, eating too much or you know, spending too long with a client or not having, you know, having a client return and want to see a new girl or, or if a client comes in drunk and belligerent and causes a problem, you know, that then the, the women are fined for this. And this is a case, I, I will say, I, I try to be very careful when we're doing commercial sex cases or cases of, of sex trafficking that I always mention that sexual trafficking can happen to, to men and women and that clients of sex trafficking victims can always be men and women. But, but in this case, uh, specifically, we are dealing with all women victims and all male clients. But we are also dealing with a female trafficker. The head of the, this business in the U.S. is Len Yuan. Uh, she goes by Len Yuan Cindy Ma, which she's running, she's running this business. So she's trafficking other women. Her husband is named Yong Zong Yang. Uh, Yan is listed in Florida as being a number of presidents of and, and owning a number of the spas that these women were trafficked between. But so far, he hasn't been charged with anything or served with anything. And I haven't been able to find much on him. I don't even know if he's in the U.S. or if he's outside of it or elsewhere. So that's a little asterisk of, of question mark, if we will, of, of a part of this case that isn't very clear. But... Anyway, so the cops start trying to trace this. They're, they're tracking who's coming in and who's coming out. They're making such valuable records as, you know, license plates and photographs of who's going into the business. Because of the tapping they were able to do, they know who's receiving services as well. And it is into this web that Mr. Bob Kraft falls. Now, Mr. Robert Kraft is uh, a billionaire. He is the owner of the New England Patriots. He also owns uh, the Kraft Group. So if you enjoy your, your cheeses of various sorts, uh, he has assets in paper and packaging, sports and entertainment, real estate development. He owns uh, Major League Soccer's New England Revolution, and he is also the owner of Gillette Stadium. So he is doing quite well, 
He also hit the news uh, quite a bit during the most recent presidential election because he's a big supporter and personal friend of Donald Trump. So that's also another reason why I think this has gotten so much media attention is sort of that that tie-in. He's recorded on video. The police have the video recordings because, again, surveillance of him receiving uh, sexual services from women who, who were forced to do so. One of the questions that has arisen from this is that did Kraft know that these women were trafficked? But actually, as far as trafficking law is concerned, it doesn't matter. He received services from a victim of trafficking. He is therefore involved in trafficking. He's not a head trafficker, but he is certainly listed as someone engaging in the perpetration of human trafficking. And so that's one of the reasons why he, when he, when he's been charged right now, He's been charged um, along with 25 other people for first degree misdemeanor for soliciting prostitution. But there is, a, there is a chance. It's probably very, very slim and rare, I think, because it's very clear he was a client. But he could be labeled as someone who participated in human trafficking for, for going to one of these places and, and engaging with these victims. And that's the thing that I want to make clear that happens within human trafficking is that we talked about this a little bit in the Santoya Brown case where... You could possibly, as a client, uh, pick up, if you will, or hire someone thinking either for, for labor or sex, not knowing that they are a victim of, of trafficking, but you not knowing isn't actually an excuse. So what does this mean, though, for, you know, sort of the people who are actually very clearly involved in the perpetration, which is sort of Lanyuan and a few of her agents? Now, they are clear-cut perpetrators, and so right now... They have been charged with a first-degree felony. It's up to 30 years in prison for human trafficking. They also have been charged with deriving support from the proceeds of prostitution, which is a second-degree felony. They could get 15 years. And then they have a bunch of just general prostitution charges. Some of these prostitution charges have gone out to over 300 different people, so I'm not sure, and I had a very hard time finding where these went to, that these might have been clients, these might have maybe been suppliers of items to the salons, these might have been mid-level managers and agents, counterfeiters, who, who knows, I'm hoping that that comes out a little bit more. But for those ones, for the prostitution charges, those are misdemeanors, and you're looking at like a max of about 60 days in jail. So at absolute max, if, if these sentences, if they're found guilty and these sentences aren't served concurrently, you're looking at about 45 years in prison, absolute max. However, if any of these victims are identified as being under the age of 18 and therefore minor victims, or if any victims have been uh, seriously physically harmed, so if they're found to have used, instead of just the force and intimidation and coercion that a lot of these women and the very preliminary statements they gave are giving, if they were found to, say, have committed a murder to keep people in line, or if these women were severely beaten, or if anyone has lasting physical damage, these charges could get bumped up even higher, and then we could see life sentences. But as Seth and I have long experienced, it is very rare for individuals not involved in the trafficking, explicit trafficking of minors to get sentences this harsh. But maybe in this case, because this seems to be something, this is a pandemic of Chinese-based massage parlors with that have sort of human trafficking hubs that Florida is, is experiencing, this may cause Florida to start throwing the book shall we say, at, at people arrested for this crime. How the, the women themselves got to the U.S., interestingly, is still under debate. 
some women reported coming into the country via plane, but we have no we have no passports, we have no documents for them, so it's unknown if they came in on legitimate documents and then those documents were destroyed or taken from them, or if the women were brought under fake counterfeit documents, which then maybe went back into circulation. Other women have not said how they arrived, but the police are fairly certain that they did not arrive by plane, which to me means that they were brought in illegally through other means. We've talked about bringing people in through through shipping containers and other things like that into the U.S. before. What most of the people, though, have reported uh, on how they got recruited into coming and working in these massage parlors is that agents went to their small and rural areas in China. They approached families with young women uh, uh, who were unemployed directly and said, you know, would you like to go to America? Primarily, uh, well, it seems to have been pushed as as to work as waitresses. You know, would would you be willing to to come to the U.S. and engage in, you know, working in business? It also seems like a few were asked if they, you know, would they come and engage in prostitution? But that was with their consent. It was only when they arrived in country, suddenly their ability to, you know, just because you consent to work in prostitution doesn't mean that someone then has the right to take away all of your documents and force you to work. You know, you can consent to work in illicit activity and then be trafficked. So the the women who have come have also reported, though, that they are also, in addition to sort of this idea of being held in sex trafficking, that they have been held in debt bondage as well so as part of coming to work for these spas the agents basically said we run a sort of uh, middleman business so you pay us a couple thousand dollars we will get you or we will get your daughter into the united states to work once they have paid us off they can send you money home for for families facing a lot of debt and a lot of economic instability, this comes across as a great way to make money. A lot of people in East Asia are forced to live home to work in sex economies or in labor economies as people who work in the service industry or as domestic laborers to send money home to support their families. This isn't like a new concept, so it, it certainly seems very normal uh, to participate in. But then once the women arrive in, in country they're told okay you have a you have huge debts this debt has now tripled because you know we charged you for the gas to get to the airport or the shipping container we charged you for the right to have a blanket we charged you for this we charged you for this we charged you for this and now we're going to continue to charge you every day for your living expenses and if this is a day maybe when say you know because they have to pay $30 a day to live and then you can get fined for for quote unquote misbehavior maybe if you don't have any clients that day just living, you've racked up an additional hundred dollars debt. And they sometimes will do things we've talked about in agricultural podcasts of adding, you know, it's a 10% interest rate <laughs> on top of it. So women very quickly become trapped in this system where they can't get out because they owe money. And because they owe money, they feel like they have nowhere to turn. But even if they were able to contact police, they're from areas where maybe they're fleeing. Uh, police misconduct, especially, again, if we're talking about women from rural China who speak a small dialect, that most likely means that they're a Chinese minority population, which means maybe they don't feel represented by the Han state, so they don't feel comfortable contacting police. And if they have been told maybe that they'll, if they do contact police or do ask for help, you know, maybe, or they get a hold of a phone and they call someone at home, that 
they will be automatically deported, but their family will still be responsible for paying that debt off, which oftentimes because of the huge amount is, you know, life destroying for these families. So it's really a, a label of late, you know, levels and levels and levels of coercion and, and violence against these women to keep them in line. And then 77 year old billionaires drive in and, and get their services. And whether they know that it's an illicit service or not, I don't actually care. You participated in human trafficking. You benefited off of another individual suffering. I think you should be charged. But I get that it's a slippery slope because then is everyone who buys a shirt from Forever 21 complicit? Legally. Morally, yes. But legally, that's a little harder. But one of the things that's actually, I think, kind of quite sad about this story is that, you know, there are millions of these parlors that operate across the U.S. Looking at this map on rubmap.com, I mean, Texas alone has 1,800. New York has over 2,000. You know, and, and there might, Florida, listed on the map, has just under 1,400. And so while some of these may be places where everyone there is working with full consent and agency, you know, I, to quote Forrest Gump, I'm not a smart man, but, you know, I will paraphrase. I'm not a smart man, but I know what human trafficking looks like, and this seems like it's happening. So this is sort of a, a major concern. And the only reason why it hit the national news to the point where we have outlets like BuzzFeed talking about it is because it involves Robert Kraft. If, if Bob Kraft wasn't involved, this would, I think, just be another day, another sting in Florida. And we these now survivors, we, we wouldn't know about, we wouldn't hear about. What's going to happen to these women is still really unclear. Will they have access to sort of visa programs to remain in the United States? Will they be deported to China? Where, If you are deported to China for, for leaving the country illegally, you can go and be sentenced to prison and go to a prison camp. Like, so what... What's going to happen to these women? What's going to happen to these agents that are still present in China? Is China going to try and form some sort of coalition with the Florida government and try to hunt down these, these intermediary agents? That's very unclear. All of the news is focused on what's going to happen to Bob Kraft and what's going to happen to Lan Yuan Ma. And honestly, at this point, I hope it's fines and jail time and public humiliation but I want to know what's going to happen to these women next year. Where, where are they going to be? Are they going to be worse off than they were, uh, you know, free, but like economically and in terms of their safety, worse off than, than they were last week? That's, I think, probably one of the hardest parts about this field is that what comes up in, in the podcast we did on Monica Peterson is that, you know, what do we save women from and what do we save them to? It, it, is where do we leave people when they sort of leave our field? What happens to them? So one of the things I found interesting about this case was that law enforcement called the sting human trafficking. And yeah. that media can get it messed up. Like I've seen a sting in Fort Collins where it was a prostitution sting. Like that yeah. was what it was, and yet the local paper called it a human trafficking sting. And while sex trafficking often involves prostitution, mm -hmm. if it's if it's purely a prostitution sting, it's not a human trafficking sting. And so it's confusing when the media gets it wrong. But in this case, we have law enforcement at the press conference talking about modern-day slavery. Mm -hmm. 
Now I'm looking at one article on Reason Magazine where they were trying to make that point that there's confusion and they quote the DA Dave Ehrenberg uh, from Palm Beach where he's going through and talking about the defendants, the Johns, and he says yes. there's no allegation that any defendant engaged in human trafficking, which this author on Reason misunderstands. Yeah. Because the DA is only talking about the defendants because very clearly Ma was charged with human trafficking. Exactly. And that's and that's why I think there's that difference right now, and I tried to articulate that, of can they be? Technically, yes. Will they be? Probably not. Mm-hmm. But when there are direct ties, when we, we've talked about, you know, when it's very clear that force, fraud, or coercion has been used, when people have engaged with the AMP model, they've engaged in actions for a particular means and for a partic- via particular means for a particular purpose, then it's very clearly human trafficking. And that, to me, too, that the sting was labeled that before it even occurred as a human trafficking sting, and they went in with that aim, tells me that through their initial investigation and through initial reporting, all of those flags that we talked about were big enough and obvious enough that it was very clear to them that human trafficking on some scale was occurring. And it it was a very long investigation for them to leave these women in servitude. But on the other, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, there's something to be said about that where you want to, quote, save people, but then, you know, they take six months to do the investigation. But the other part of it is it's hard to prosecute some of these things without evidence. Mm -hmm. The uh, Reason article also quoted how it was hard to get one woman to cooperate and that it seemed that the women technically had the ability to walk out into the street and get help, but they didn't, which this author also misunderstands to say, well, maybe it's because they're willing. But between threats, between not knowing the language, between working a lot, that well, doesn't mean and, and it doesn't mean they're not being trafficked. In and fact, how would you ask for help? You don't speak English and it's at the point where they've had to fly in translators. Mm-hmm. for this this isn't the sort of thing where like you can just there, that there's going to be somebody in town somewhere in a major city who speaks the language this is this would be hard to find a translator in china to do well and yeah so how are you going to walk in and call the police and if you're from an area or a part of the world where people don't call the police for help or where perhaps the owner of the salon maybe maybe law enforcement have been clients which we've talked about or at the very least, maybe the owner of the of this quote unquote spa. I don't like calling it a spa. I feel like that gives it legitimacy. But but the yeah. owner of this house of horrors maybe has told them that if they if if they walk out, their 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 family at home will be harmed. If they walk out, they'll immediately be de- deported. If they walk out, they're going to hurt other women who work there. If you walk out, we can't protect you on the street from like X, Y, or Z. You know, and a lot of times these, again, these larger scale trafficking organizations of, of this couple like have ties generally to to other illicit markets. So that might also come out too. I'm assuming not a lot is out there about how they got the RICO message, but that passed. But that pr- presumably that means that at some point they were able to prove that these people were involved in a criminal organization of some sort. So that's scary. Like everybody seem likes to think that. You know, and I know that I've done this before, too. But, you know, you think that if in an emergency or traumatic situation that everyone thinks that they're going to be the Superman, right? But the fact is, is that most of us would just pee our pants. And that's just human nature. So, but yeah, it's it's encouraging to me that law enforcement seems to get so many things right this time around. But strange that media seems to get so many things wrong. 
And the last point here is for it to be trafficking, it needs to meet certain criteria. However, the legal charge doesn't always align with human trafficking in fact. So law enforcement is not always able to charge criminal human trafficking because the bar is high and because proving coercion is difficult. And so the fact that there's even a specific trafficking charge is very telling. Yeah, yeah. But if there wasn't a trafficking charge, that doesn't mean it's not human trafficking. We should look at the criteria and look at the situation. But there's confusion on this. And I and I was even confused in trying to figure out what was happening with the case. But just because whether there or not is a human trafficking charge doesn't mean there is or isn't trafficking. Those those are separate things. But although if it does help that there is a charge. Yeah, and I have to say still that I am I am still very impressed with law enforcement sort of hitting all of these points going forward and being very clear that this is human trafficking. They've actually even been really good about staying on message, referring to it as trafficking and not slavery. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if there's someone who, who sort of heads that up in the area, but thumbs up. Thumbs up to you, sir, or madam, person, whoever you are, because you're, you're doing very well with that, because that is rare. Okay, yeah, and so that concludes the story of what the media is calling the story of Bob Kraft and human trafficking, but I would rather refer to the story of human trafficking via massage parlors with a special focus on Florida and one very dumb old white man. And there you go. So that's Florida Man Part 1. And I, oh, and I will say, if you, you know, it it seems like what tipped off this, this by law enforcement, maybe another, another positive to take away from this case is that it seemed like what tipped off law enforcement were individuals who lived in the neighborhood and people who lived around and and worked in the strip malls where uh, Lanyu and Ma's businesses were. So please, if you see something that strikes you as, as shady or suspicious or, you know, you don't notice employees coming and going, but they're always there. And I mean, certainly, I, I think most people in the U.S. kind of look at when you see like sort of a small like place offering like massage, you know, with a neon sign at a strip mall. I think the inclination is to think that it's shady. Please contact local law enforcement and report it. Call the National Human Trafficking Hotline and share your concerns because worst case scenario, you're right. And you might help somebody. All right. That's all for this week. Later. Later. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.